This is the Chronicles Podcast, a production of Chronicles Magazine, the original outlet for paleoconservative thought and a bastion of the authentic right in America. Well, welcome everybody back to another episode of the Chronicles Magazine podcast. I'm delighted to be joined this morning by um, Sean Davis. If anyone doesn't know Sean, he is the, you've actually founded The Federalist, is that right? I did, yes. So he's a co-founder of The Federalist and you're the top dog there, you're the CEO. And um, I, The Federalist is a great, out, um, a great outlet for what I, what I appreciate most about you guys is all the details you um, can capture on, especially like Molly and like her, like the ability for her to capture the corruption in Washington, that side of things. Um, I, I, I lean on you a lot for just all the, um, your covering of the weaponization of the judicial system, the election, um, difficulties. I mean, not only in 2020, but just all the insanities, um, that they're, that the democratic party and just the regime in general is pulling to kind of get their way. And we could talk a little bit about that. And then, uh, I initially ha- wanted you to come on to talk about, um, the, un- the insane bill, the Senate bill, um, relating to immigration funding in Ukraine and all of that too. So corruption is sort of the theme of our conversation today. Um, but Sean, thank you for joining me. Yeah, thank you for having me, and thank you for the kind words. Yeah, so, um, well, let's start with um, well, let's start with immigration. I mean, that it's kind of out of the news now with the whole Texas standoff thing. Um, but one of the things that came out of that was this um, completely fake narrative about well, if you want to fund immigration, you have to you know pass this bill basically. But the bill obviously was using immigration as sort of a teaser, sort of a bait to get what they really wanted, which was. Um, the crazy funding of Ukraine, um, Israel, and all sorts of other outlets taking our, you know, scarce resources here in America and fueling them overseas uh, with no consideration of what America needs, what the American people want, and, um, you know, the the stability and integrity of, you know, the the American first and, you know, the American concerns of the American people. So I guess let's start with that. Um did you do you interpret that in the same way that I did that the immigration was sort of like a, a carrot, you know, to get people on board with something that was um, actually just, uh, you know, basically a funding scam? Almost. I, I, I actually have an even more cynical view of it. Um, I don't even think there was a carrot in that bill. It was just a monster bait and switch. And the reality is that the regime, uh, the deep state, the uniparty, kind of whatever you want to call it, everyone has different names. Um, they don't want a border. So the left doesn't want a border because they want people to be able to come in here and vote willy-nilly. Like that's the whole reason for importing millions and millions and millions of immigrants, legal or uh, illegal, is they believe they can convert them into votes for the Republican Party. So that that's the motivation, or for the Democrat Party, that's the motivation for the left. Uh, for much of the people on the so-called right, kind of like the Chamber of Commerce, you know, globalist right, where the only thing that matters is economics. They look at our country and they say, oh, America is really just a global economic zone that happens to be geographically located where it is. It's not really a country. Um, people are economic inputs and and they're not having as many babies. So we need to start importing labor because um, that'll do two things. One, it'll keep the GDP up. And two, it'll enable these big companies to pay people less because when you increase the supply of something, 
you know, everything else being held equal, the, the price of that thing is going to go down. So they want to be able to pay people less and they want more people just being cogs in the e economy. And then the third group, which is basically irrelevant in Washington and has no voice, are regular people and citizens who pay the bills and, and pay for the largesse that our government uh, uh, spends every day. We actually think America is a special place that uh, you can't have a nation without borders, you can't have a nation without laws, and that America is a wonderful nation and culture, uh, uh, a place where people can come and be free and do as they please, or at least they could at one time. And then in order to protect that, you actually have to protect your borders and you have to protect your culture um, so that your nation can continue to do the things that it's always done that made it great. And what happened in Washington was they decided they wanted open borders. And so they were going to pretend to do border security. Like mm -hmm. there was no actual border security carrot in it. There's none. It's a right. straight up like amnesty bill um, with a whole bunch of money for Ukraine. And then they looked at you just dead in the eye and said, no, it's totally border security. And if you don't vote against this bill, you hate border security. It was a total lie. It was a total con job. And everyone involved in it should be embarrassed about it. So wh where was the funding? I mean, they say that there was earmarked money for the immigration issue and for the border security. Um, they also included in the bill that there was actually carved out the ability for 5,000 illegal immigrants to cross the border like per day. So like the idea that it was closing the border or securing it from illegal immigrants um, is ridiculous. But where was that funding supposed to go? Was it actually going to handling actual on the ground problems in Texas or what was going on with it? Where was it going? Oh, there was definitely money going somewhere. The bulk of it, they told you it was going for border security. It was actually going to help Border Patrol process immigrants claiming asylum. Because remember, that that's the uh, that's the lie that's been perpetrated during the Biden administration. Uh, traditionally, under our law, you only get to apply for asylum under a very specific set of circumstances, generally around political persecution or like civil war or violence where you're being targeted almost personally because of your your beliefs or your views and then they decide asylum on a case-by-case -case basis right. well under this administration they decided that you can get asylum if you're coming here looking for work they're calling you you know a, a victim of of economic crime or whatever to, to get you asylum and as a result we have millions and millions of people flooding across the border who've been told that as long as you get here the Biden administration at some point in the next decade uh, will process you as an asylee. And so that's actually what the Biden border patrol is having a problem with. There's so many millions of people coming across the border to get this fake asylum that they can't even handle it. So what yeah. the Biden administration wanted was a whole bucket load of money so that they could just process asylees faster, which means they wanted the money so they could get illegals into America even faster. They, right. they didn't want the money to secure anything. And then there was the whole $60 billion for Ukraine on top of it. It was actually a Ukraine bill and an amnesty bill masquerading as a border security bill. Yeah, that's that's sort of what they do. And people I mean, people have for a long time have kind of just just in their own common decencies have, have believed, well, they have the, our best interests in mind. And yeah, corruption happens. I don't think people realize the extent to which um, the regime is basically declaring culture war on the American people. And I think a lot of a lot of people are becoming more you know, radicalized, so to speak, about the realities of things, they are very clearly trying to do 
um, something nefarious with demographics. Um, and maybe it's even beyond, um, you know, just election concerns with the Democratic Party. I mean, there are business interests at play. There are international financial interests at play. I know you've probably read the great book by Michelle Malkin on Open Borders Incorporated. Um, there's a lot of nefarious interests. They have long term objectives um, for the American people. And at the end of the day, yes, they want to uh, they want to refuse to consider us a nation at all and let us just be an economic zone um, indiscriminately. People can just come across and do whatever they want here. I noticed, too, you know, they always they always talk about like the, the job creation. I think over the last couple of years, um, yeah, at least a year, the number of jobs that have been gained were actually only by immigrants. I mean, for the, like over 90 percent by immigrants. And so they're not even considering what well, they probably are considering just, you know, how devastating this is to the Native American population, the citizenry that have been here for a long time and that want to continue being a nation into the future. They just have no respect uh, for them at all. And I think this is a problem that crosses both parties. Obviously, this isn't something that's just relegated um, to the Democrats. So with that said, um, what do you think about like there's this debate between illegal and legal immigration, but what they seem to be doing is just putting a stamp of approval and making all these illegals into legal residents here. Um, so maybe we should talk more about immigration itself and, you know, the, the consequences of just, uh, you know, you know, widespread immigration instead of, you know, the only talking about illegal immigration. Do you, do you have any thoughts on that? Yeah, well, so so immigration by itself, when we're talking about legal immigration, um, I don't have a problem with it um, <clears throat> at all. What I have a problem with is how immigration is being used to completely and radically transform American culture. And if you if you think of culture as kind of the the soil of a nation uh, in, into which like you know the seeds of, of prosperity are sown, um, America's culture it was a very specific thing uh, during the you know two hundred plus years where we were rising and becoming the richest most powerful, most prosperous nation on earth. And what happens when you bring in huge amounts of immigrants without kind of inculcating into them the American values that made the country great, which is that soil, um, if you're just bringing them in and, and they're not actually becoming Americans, they're becoming you know people who just uh, have a checkbox on a form that says they're citizens, those are two really, really different things. And you read these stories, you hear these histories of people who came you know, from Ireland or Italy, they had no money, they, sh they showed up at Ellis Island, they couldn't speak the language. What did those people try to do? They, they needed work, but you weren't gonna find work without being able to, to speak English, so they learned English. They did whatever jobs they could, and they became Americans. They didn't remain Irish or Italians and only do the Irish and Italian things they had always done. They fully became Americans and adopted into our uh, adopted our system and adopted our ideals for themselves. And that's awesome. That's like the, the actual melting pot that we heard about all the time growing up in school. Uh, the actual melting pot is great where where they come in, uh, you know, we get infused with, you know, their culture and neat stuff they bring. But it, but at its core, America's culture is staying intact. We're not seeing that anymore at all. Um, we're we're seeing immigration come in and radically transform the country, which I'm sorry, that's just not fair. America doesn't exist as a global economic zone for other people to just come and work. America is a specific, unique, distinct place with its own laws, its own belief, its own cultures, and its own borders. 
And I think if we've reached a point where immigration is starting to interfere with the culture that made us great, that's when you actually have to start looking at maybe throttling it down. But immigration itself is, isn't a problem in my view. It's when you combine immigration with not just a lack of assimilation, but almost uh, an aggressive hatred of assimilation, which is what it feels like our, our regime and our leaders now have. They, they, they seem to actually have disdain for America and what we believe uh, and what actually made us great. They seem to kind of hate us. Uh, and, and I think that goes for the left and the right. It, it was hard for me to watch Mitch McConnell last week and, and hear his comments about the, the immigration bill and get any impression other than he hates his own voters. Mm-hmm. And that that's a, a an awful toxic place to be in in a country where your own leaders detest uh, the people who make uh, their government even possible. Yeah, it's it's funny. I mean, speaking of the corruption of of laws, I mean, that's one of the things that America had going for it. Um, you know, even like, you know, half a century, maybe more ago was it's a bit was the strength and integrity of its legal system, um, you know, and they can make a mockery of it um, on the immigration issue. And then that that whole thing is just a symptom of, of an overall you know, transformation of the legal system as something that can be weaponized for regime interests. And you and I, you've been talking about this over the last couple of days, especially in response to, um, you know, some of the things they claim about Putin and how great America is compared to, you know, how, um, you know, dictatorial Putin is over there. You pointed out this morning um, that you can see extremely nefarious weaponization of the legal system against like people like Donald Trump. Um, so talk a little bit about that. There's this myth that America is sort of above the politics of it all, but very clearly we're seeing something unravel that's completely different than that story. It is, yeah. And, and think back to the Cold War. Um, so, you know, 1945 through the early 90s, especially through the 80s, we had the evil empire in the Soviet Union. And the Soviet Union was absolutely evil. It was a, a godless, uh, evil hellscape tens of millions of people uh, imprisoned or killed, uh, Christianity all but outlawed, uh, no individual rights. You had a government living high on the hog. It, it was evil. And, and thankfully, uh, through really two things, kind of the moral authority of the United States as the shining beacon on the hill, as well as its economic engine, are what eventually were able to defeat the Soviet Union. But let's, let's look at where we are now. And, and we're talking about this because uh, political dissident in Moscow uh, was found dead, killed. I don't know. It's Russia, so you never know. Mm-hmm. Um, this was a guy who was uh, a political opponent of Putin's. Uh, he was banned from running against him in their elections. He was thrown in prison. His lawyers were thrown in prison. Uh, they, they basically used kind of the entire previous Soviet legal infrastructure to go to town on this guy. And it's awful. Um, But when you compare where we are now to where we were in the 80s, when we had Reagan saying, tear down this wall, uh, vowing to defeat the the evil empire, what do we have in in America happening now? Okay, so we have a regime trying to throw its chief political opponent in prison. Uh, They're using every legal lever uh, at at hand. Their allies are going after him in civil and criminal suits in multiple states. I believe we have two states now, Colorado and Maine. Um, which have vowed to throw Trump off the ballot. They're trying to put him in prison for the rest of his life. They're effectively trying to make his life in the same way Navalny's did, which is a political dissident in prison who's going to die there. So when you, you see the facts like that, it's really difficult for me 
to look at Putin and say, you know what, that's the guy that all of my ire and wrath and anger should be focused on because he's such a bad guy, uh, which he is. But it's not Putin who's throwing American Christians in prison for praying in front of abortion clinics. It's not Putin trying to take away my right to self-defense and your self-defense. It wasn't Vladimir Putin uh, who, when he got caught having uh, helped the, the Chinese communists make a deadly virus, um, decided that he was going to ban people from going to work and ban people from going to church. That was our government that did that. Okay, that was our government that's throwing Christians in prison for protesting abortion. Uh, it's not Putin trying to put uh, Joe Biden's chief political opponent in prison. It's not Putin who's trying to put Joe Biden's chief political opponent's lawyers in prison. That is our regime. And so I have a very difficult time getting all that exercise about all the awful things Vladimir Putin is doing when Vladimir Putin is not personally a threat to me or my right. way of living. But my government is clearly a threat to me and my way of living because my government has decided we don't get to, to say the things that we want to say. You know, my publication, The Federalist, was censored uh, and has been targeted by our federal government. We're actually suing them in court now over their censorship activities. Uh, you know, my government is is going after uh, my Christian brothers and, and sisters, trying trying to put them in jail. It was my government that wanted me and, and everyone like me fired and potentially even banned from healthcare if we chose not to uh, take one of their experimental so-called vaccines uh, that was rushed out. And you'll hear people talk about this in foreign policy theory, like the nearer threat versus the further threat. The nearer threat to us in this country is not Vladimir Putin. It's our own government. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I completely agree. And we just talked about immigration. I mean, Putin has no involvement in, you know, border security in America. He's not the one opening the borders and transforming, um, you know, the, the, the character of the American people um, by tearing down our borders and basically making us a post nation. You know, that's not any of that is, is Vladimir Putin. And so I wonder how much of this is them trying to distract from their own um, objectives and priorities or if they are trying to agitate for more conflict or if they're trying to maintain their European hegemony, like what do you think's going on there? Why, why are they picking a fight? It seems um, with someone so far away and so unconcerned with um, the everyday concerns of Americans. Well, I, I actually think it's all of the above. Um, something happened in the Democrat brain when Donald Trump beat Hillary Clinton. It, it wasn't supposed to happen. It, they couldn't compute, and, and I, it's almost like the collective uh, Democrat mind in America had a psychotic break with reality. And the way they coped with that is they decided, no, Hillary didn't really lose. Actually, Russia stole the election. It was Putin who did it. And there's been this odd psychosis on the left ever since where almost on a dime, they went from wanting to reset relations with Russia. You recall Hillary went and met with the foreign minister, uh, Lavrov, and gave him the reset button. That was a very deliberate, and by the way, it wasn't the wrong thing to do at the time, but it was a very deliberate policy they had until the moment that Trump won, and then they had to find a scapegoat, and it couldn't be them or the crappy candidate or their own crappy qual, uh, policies. They had to blame someone, and so they blamed Putin. So uh, ever since, you've had this psychotic break with reality from the left where they can't function without Russia being this big, looming, awful uh, evil madman running the world like it it, it tried to do for 50 years. Um, so th they have so much of their like political 
uh, grievance wrapped up in Putin that they will never let go. Uh, mm -hmm. Donald Trump beat the woman who was supposed to be the first woman president, who was going to be their savior, and they'll never, ever, ever let that go. They've decided in their hearts and their minds Putin is responsible, and they're therefore committed to get getting rid of him by hook or crook, no matter the cost. On the right, you have kind of a separate thing, which, which is the neocon movement. Mm -hmm. And neocons uh, believe that uh, you can enforce on other countries our values and our way of life by going in there, declaring war against them, uh, executing regime change, and then being in charge of everything. That, that, mm -hmm. That's truly what they believe. They thought we'd be greeted as liberators in Iraq. They thought that if we went into Afghanistan, everyone would uh, throw flowers at us and be thrilled that girls could go to school again. Uh, and they think that if we do this uh, war in Ukraine against Russia, that we'll be able to depose Putin, that it won't be someone far worse who gets in there and that everything will be hunky-dory. Now, if you've been alive for the last 25 years, you know that's all nonsense because you saw what happened in Iraq. You saw what happened with the Arab Spring. You saw what happened in Afghanistan. We wasted 20 years, trillions of dollars, tens of thousands of lives and limbs on what was effectively nothing. And so you have this huge segment of the, uh, the Washington uh, Republican establishment, which is neocon, which never sees a war it doesn't want to get involved in. And uh, there's ideological components to that, obviously. I think there are a lot of people who really just enjoy shoveling money to defense contractors. Uh, so they're definitely enjoying it. You know, right. um, they're, they're all their friends at Raytheon and Lockheed are getting rich. And, and so when you combine those, like the kind of military industrial complex stuff that Eisenhower warned about, um, the neocons thinking you can just go to war everywhere and make everything perfect with no cost. And then you have the Democrat obsession with Putin in Russia. That's how we got to where we are today with, yeah. with, with everyone's obsession with a country that, quite frankly, is a hollow shell of its former self. The idea that Russia is somehow our number one uh, global strategic foe is, to me, utterly insane. It's clearly China. Um, we depend on China for almost everything in our economy. We don't really depend on Russia for anything. And yet we're all being gaslit and, and really emotionally blackmailed in, into believing that it's Vladimir Putin, the guy who doesn't really have any control over anything we do, uh, who, who's the real person in charge and the real villain in the world that we need to take down. Yeah. And then meanwhile, I mean, you still have all of these, you know, prisoners from the January 6th incident. Um, how do you think things like that play into this? What's their objective there? Is it just to scare people into submission? Um, is it just a way for them to get revenge on Donald Trump? Because so far they've been unable to get him. Like, what do you think? How do you think that plays into it? I mean, that's obviously um, a significant and close to home. I know people there. It's a close to home, um, you know, ramification of the corruption of of the legal system in America. Oh, yeah, yeah. I mean, the, the, the left um, hates Republicans, hates conservatives and hates Christians that now that may be hard for some people to hear, um, but it's the reality. Uh, I, don't, I don't see how you can look at the events of the last, you know, 10, eight, four years and come to any other conclusion. Uh, I, I recall, I think it was the 2012 DNC convention where they literally booed God. The Democrats mm -hmm. literally booed God at their convention. Mm -hmm. um, it, 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 it's crazy to me. But yeah, they, they hate their uh, political opponents, which is why they're trying to put Trump in prison. They hate the idea of people disagreeing with them publicly, which is why they try to censor everything. Uh, they hate the idea of people protesting against them, which is why they're doing the, the, their J6 nonsense. 
and they desperately want to be able to use the tools of counterintelligence and the tools we use against foreign enemies against right. their domestic enemies. That's actually what January 6th was about. It was an opportunity for them to go and use all these nifty little deep state surveillance and legal tools uh, that were enacted in the wake of 9-11, except they want to use them against people like you and me. So are they trying to uh, set precedent for themselves? Is that part of it, you think? Uh, I mean, maybe. I think I, I actually think they just hate us and they saw an opportunity to use their yeah. power against us. And so they jumped at it. And, yeah. by, and by the way, um, props to them for that. The, the one thing that the left does really, really well that the right in Washington seems incapable of doing is using power for its own benefit. So like, right. and they're evil, but in some ways I admire it because I really wish our party would protect us uh, on the right uh, in the same way that the left protects the left and goes after the left's enemies. Instead, our side seems content on uh, losing as long as they can say they, good, they gave it a good effort, and, you know, but at least they beat the spread. That's something that, you know, people in our circles talk about all the time is the left. I mean, this is one of the things that like um, Jeff Dice, who used to be with the Mises Institute, you know, says he's like the difference between the left and the right is that the left is serious. <laughs> you know, they they see this as a battle and they act accordingly, whereas the conservatives in Washington just see it as sort of a fundraising opportunity from time to time. And and they absorb all the potential um you know, pushback that the actual Democratic Party could receive, the Republican Party just absorbs it and prevents people from actually doing something on behalf of its constituency and behalf on behalf of the American people that need it the most. So that's why the, the conservatives uh, in, in Washington historically have just played that role of absorbing potential um, you know, power, potential, you know, the, the ability to confront the Democrats is completely absorbed by the Republican Party. They don't do anything productive and they profit from it the whole time. So that's why, you know, people have called them like the loser industrial complex. I mean, that's kind of their function in Washington is to lose with grace, you know, and meanwhile, uh, profit from that from that process. Um, so um, so going forward on the Trump thing, um, a why do they want Trump to be, um, you know, do they want him in jail? Do they realize, I guess my better, my, my more specific question is, do they realize Trump's becoming more popular as they continue to hit him with the hammer? Um, I mean, they, they believe that their only way of, of winning this election is by putting Trump in prison. It's as simple as that. They don't care that he's popular. They don't care how many people like him. They don't care how many votes he'll get because they, they believe deep down, if they can put him in prison, they'll win the ballot game. And increasingly, that's what American elections are about. It's not actually about who's the most popular, who has the policies that most people want. The game now in politics is who can get the most ballots in. And that's a very, very different world than one where uh, uh, approval polls and election polls and favorability and unfavorability matters. When, when you can control how ballots are uh, sent out and received um, that you have a lot more power than if you uh, need to just make sure that people like you and, and are popular. And I, I think, you know, we've been talking about Russia. It was Stalin who says it's not the votes that count. It's who votes, who counts them mm -hmm. uh, that matters. I butchered that going full Joe Biden on, on quotes here. <laughs> um, not, not that bad. But, but they understand that. They understand that very well. And, and you made such a great point when you talked about the loser party in Washington. So much of an official Republican Washington establishment doesn't actually care about winning. They don't care about punishing their enemies and rewarding their allies, which to the actual 
purpose of politics. They just want to lose with dignity as long as they get a seat at the table. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And yeah. And so um, do you think that they're, I mean, it's obvious that they kind of wanted Nikki Haley um, to who basically at this point, um, nobody wants. And do you think that they're trying to force her down the throats of the American people? Or do you think they can actually convince them um, to vote for her? Do you think that um, they're just completely uncoupled from the will of the American people? And that's why they have to take um, the legal avenue against Trump, because they know they just they have they are aware of the fact of how much they're hated. Do you think that they do you think the Republican Party um, establishment knows how much the American people despises them and is fed up basically with them? No, not at all. And, and in the Nikki Haley thing, it, it's such an obvious op from the establishment right and the left where they know she's not going to win, but she is a weapon they can use against Trump and damage him until she's not useful anymore. And then they'll throw her out. That, like, that's how they look at everything. What can we do today? And who can we use today to damage our political opponents and punish them for opposing us? And mm -hmm. so that's where, that's where she fits in. Everything over the last you know, eight years since Trump came on the scene um, is about that. What can we do today? How can we own today's news cycle to somehow damage Trump and reduce his power, the power of the right, so we can get more power for ourselves. Yeah. Do you see do you see a continued escalation of tensions um, in Eastern Europe? Like, do you think do you think the United States is going to relent at all? Uh, well, it depends on what's going to happen in in the uh, the election in November. Um, mm -hmm. the, the government in charge now uh, clearly has no desire to ever stop. I mean, they they lost their gravy train when Biden, uh, to his credit, pulled out of Afghanistan. They had a 20-year-long operation there where it didn't matter how uh, incompetent they fought, it didn't matter how badly we were losing, it didn't matter how many people died, they were able to throw hundreds of billions of dollars a year at it, and they, they kept the war machine running. And when Biden got them out of Afghanistan, they needed something new there. So they don't actually care that Ukraine has no ability to beat Russia, none. Yeah. Ukraine is not winning. It's simply not gonna happen. Um, it, it, it feels like in politics, everyone uses World War II as their uh, lens through which they view everything. Exactly. And specifically, everyone I don't like is a Nazi and I'm the allies, you know, bravely storming Normandy on D-Day. Um, they forget that there was another actor in World War II, which is pretty consequential, uh, which was the Soviet Union. And it was the Soviet Union throwing tens of millions of bodies at Germany that actually it made it possible for us to win in the European theater. So you look at that, and you got to understand, Russia will throw as many bodies as they have to uh, at, at Crimea to keep it. To them, it's an existential thing. Um, yeah. And it's important in foreign policy to understand how your opponent thinks and what he's thinking. You, you really can't conduct same foreign policy uh, unless you do that. And our side, uh, our, our people in Washington seem completely incapable of understanding what Russia wants from this and what Putin wants and what the consequences for Putin uh, and Russia will be if they don't get what they want. So what's going on in Ukraine is existential for them. They're not going to lose, and which right. means they will do whatever they can up to including nukes to not lose. And so when you understand that, you, you look at what our side's doing and it looks insane. But they're actually banking on uh, Russia going along with this thing just being a meat grinder for 20 years. They don't really care how many Russians or Ukrainians died. I mean, 
heck, I, Lindsey Graham said he was willing to fight to the last Ukrainian. Right. Which is just that that's psychopath behavior right there. He doesn't care how many million of them die as long as he has an excuse to funnel some money over there. So they're going to keep going in Ukraine as long as they're allowed to. And, and I think the only way that stops um, is a, a change in our government come November. You mentioned existential crisis. Um, does this seem like the behavior of an empire that's dying um, and desperate for its own life? Or does this seem like the behavior of um, you know an empire that's in, in growth mode and it's everything is going well for it? Are you referring to us or Russia? The United States, yeah. Oh, I mean, our, our the American Republic is is clearly dying. Um, what about America's role, not as a republic, but as like sort of like the um, like an imperial uh, taking on an imperial character? Do you think it's receding in in uh, world reputation? Absolutely, it absolutely is. Um, you, you can't lose everywhere you fought the century and maintain the. Uh, sense of superiority and dominance that you had before you spent 20 years losing wars. Um, so that that's number one. And by the way, that's not the fault of the military. That That's the fault of our inept political leaders. Right. Uh, uh, so you have, have that aspect where um, everyone looks around and like, you couldn't even beat a bunch of seventh century Stone Age goat herders in Afghanistan. Mm-hmm. You're gonna be this, the, the lone global superpower. That's nonsense. And then you look at our economy. We're, we are, look, it, just from a cash accounting purpose, we're $35 trillion in debt. Mm-hmm. We, we have already spent $35 trillion more than we've brought in. That, by the way, doesn't include like an actual balance sheet look at our finances, right. which includes all the stuff you're obligated to pay in the future, but you don't have the money to do. Mm-hmm. We're effectively $100 to $200 trillion in debt, which means we could take every penny that our economy creates for like 10, 20, 30 years, and we still wouldn't be at break even on our debt. So this global uh, economic superpower that we had uh, coming out of World War II and and coming into the 80s with Reagan, that's evaporating as well. Mm -hmm. So we we have lost our military dominance through political incompetence and strategic malfeasance, and we're losing our economic dominance. So when you look at those two facts, no, we, we are not the lone superpower anymore, which is why so many people who follow foreign policy and study it are, are saying we're no longer in a unipolar world where America was the pole around which everything uh, uh, rotated. It, it's a multipolar world, and it's, it's definitely bipolar with us and China. Um, I don't think it, it's tripolar with Russia. I, I just don't think Russia is this massive. They have a ton of nukes, which is not yeah. nothing. Right. You have to respect the nukes. But as far as being uh, a major global player, a major economic power, they're not it. It's China. It's America versus China. Yeah. So why, I mean, why are we going after Russia? Just are we, do we recognize our own weakness? And and we know that um, we couldn't actually, you know, um, you know, we couldn't actually fight someone our own size. So we're going after Russia because obviously you know, trying to stare down China would be insane. And um, perhaps there's a little bit of, you know, recognition of our own weakness. And so Russia is a better um, scapegoat for our, for our, you know, where we are on the world scene. I, I wonder if, if that's part of the equation um, or if do you think that China is going to be someone that we look at directly next? I wish we would look at it now. The problem is our elites are getting rich off China. Mm-hmm. They hollowed out and sold out our economy. They hollowed out the middle class. They shipped everything offshore. They wanted to get their extra margins on paper so the bankers could get a little bit more 
Uh, that's why we have all this outsourcing and offshoring. It's why we don't make things in America anymore because the bankers uh, and, and the people in law firms in Washington, New York decided that, oh, actually America, we're much better off being a service economy. Mm-hmm. Where we're great at providing services. We, other people can make things better. Uh, well, when you can't make things, you don't really get to claim to be a, an economic superpower. Yeah. Uh, and I keep saying we need a Manhattan Project for making things in America again. Mm-hmm. How can you possibly be a, a military superpower when you don't even make your own weapons? How can you be secure economically when uh, you don't make most of your own manufacturing equipment? I'm not even sure we make most of our food anymore. Uh, we certainly don't make most of our medicine. That's a recipe for disaster. When you hand over to, to foreign countries uh, the things that you have to have to survive as a people, um, you're, you're, you're handing them the keys to the store. Um, and, and we actually did kind of like the reverse Trojan horse. Uh, instead of bringing the things in and letting them destroy us from within, we've just uh, gotten rid of all the things that you have to do to survive as a nation and decided, no, depending on China is fine. We, we can totally depend on China. And, and it's been a multi-decade project from our corrupt elites where they got rich off of it and they didn't really care what happened to America, which is how you end up in a situation where we, I don't even think we can make Advil in America. Uh, we can't make our own medicines. We can't make our own weapons. Um, we can't make our own manufacturing equipment. It, it's a recipe for disaster and it's only a matter of time before it bites us in the butt. Yeah. I want to go back to the lawfare thing. Um, like it's not only, the, you know, the weaponization of the judicial system, but also like the weaponization of our intelligence agencies and for, for so long, the, you know, the deep state has been um, not had America's best interest in mind, basically. Um, but I think more and more people are recognizing that actually the FBI and these other, um, you know, these, these other agencies and even even agencies that we don't even know much about, um, all of them seem to be focused only on the advancement of their own power. And part of the advancement of their own power is um, the repudiation of you know popular sovereignty and popular rule, which, of course, died out a long time ago. But do you think Americans um, are recognizing a do you think they're recognizing the fact that the deep state hates them? And, you know, watch them um, basically under the boot at all times. And B, do you think there's anything that can be done? I mean, is this deep state too powerful? What would it take? I mean, it seems like even an executive like Donald Trump, who actually is in the constitutional position, he just talked about the other day, or maybe it was, you know, this week, the fact that he could fire thousands of federal workers and, you know, the media went insane about it. Um, but that's actually his constitutional authority to do that as the head of the executive state. But do you think that there's any possibility of someone in a presidential position to actually do what it takes to rein in and probably even end so many of these deep intelligence agencies and departments? I think it's possible. Um, the w- the window is closing for it being possible. I mean, the, whether you want to call it the deep state, the administrative state, the permanent bureaucracy, the cancer on this country. Um, the, the things that made this country great were the American work ethic, um, our system of self-government, the rule of law, and due process. Th- those four things are why America became as great as it did. And we're seeing every single one of them being attacked. Uh, the, the deep state is a direct attack on self-government. They don't believe in accountability. They don't believe in democracy, no matter how many times they drone on about the democracy and it's our sacred democracy. It's all, they don't believe any of it. Um, the only thing they care about is their power. Um, 
so yeah, it, the, the FBI absolutely is corrupt from top to bottom. Um, it shouldn't exist uh, mm -hmm. at all. It, it is a one of the single greatest threats to our republic uh, right now is this completely entrenched corrupt deep state, whether it's the FBI, whether it's the CIA, whether it's the intelligence community or whatever, whatever you want to call it. They need to be ripped out root and branch uh, and we need to salt the earth where they stood because you cannot have self-government and you cannot have a constitutional republic with unaccountable permanent bureaucracies that give the middle finger to the American public and try to overthrow any government that gets elected that they don't like. Mm -hmm. Do you think that this is a part of why they hate Donald Trump? Because he's sort of a, a proxy of the people's aggravation with the deep state and, and the intelligence community. Like he's he's someone who obviously didn't do enough or maybe even anything at all, you could say, in his first term. But he represents sort of the discontent of the people. And that's another reason why they have to do whatever they can to shut him up um, legally. Yeah, no, Donald Trump is an existential threat. Um to, to the permanent establishment, to the ruling regime. He is 100% an existential threat, whether it's on uh, economics, trade, and immigration, whether it's on uh, foreign policy, they just want to go to war all the time and he wants nothing to do with it, or whether it's, it's the deep state wanting control of everything. Donald Trump is an existential threat to the system, and it's why they are doing everything in their power to try and keep him from getting uh, elected again. Mm -hmm. And, and so do you think that, um, I mean, do you think that he has what it takes? Well, first of all, do you think they're going to be successful in getting him off the ballots or do you think he will be elected? Um, so I think the question is, do I think they will allow him to be inaugurated right. next January? Do I think they will use any option, literally any option to prevent him from coming, from becoming president again? I do. And because of that, I, I'm extremely scared about uh, what's going to happen to our nation in the next year, because these people have made clear they will not let go of power and they don't care what it costs. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it is. I mean, we are coming to sort of a head like you just you just kind of play it out in your own mind. You know, he's obviously very popular. He's obviously the most popular candidate um hands down so what happens if they don't allow him to become president what are the what are the actual like political consequences of something so brazen but secondly what if happens if they um if he does get through and he does become president like what to what extent are they willing to um consolidate their power against him and either way i mean this isn't like a return to normalcy you know to, to use an old phrase um there's something much more um you know tremendous on the horizon in political terms. Um, and I don't think any of us can say where it's going to go, but we probably have darker days, at least for a while ahead of us. Yeah, I, I, I think that's true. Um, I think we're heading towards uh, really, really bad civil strife. Um, mm -hmm. And I don't, I, that the actual solution to it is uh, self-government in a constitutional mm -hmm. republic under the rules that we established in this country over 200 years ago. That, that's how things worked for 200 plus years until 2016. And that's right. when one side decided that you, the other side doesn't get to win. And if they do, they'll do everything in their power to sabotage and overthrow and overrule what the people actually voted for. So I, I don't have a good answer about what to do or what's gonna happen. Right. I just know that I'm, I'm fearful uh, about the future given how committed one side in this country is to never, ever letting go of power. 
what role do you think um, like for instance, like Ron DeSantis, I think he was much better as a governor than he was, um, you know, a presidential candidate, just playing that role at the state level, pushing back on behalf of um, his, you know, constituency there in Florida and, you know, people like Greg Abbott and other people signing on to those things. To what role do you think like state level pushback, even nullification and things like that? Do you think that is a healthy thing to foster in the American Absolutely. people? Absolutely. You know, we're, we're a, a federalist system, at least we were at one time, where states were equal sovereigns with the federal government. Um, so if we're going to continue, you know, kind of circling the drain, which it feels like we're doing right now, absent a major change in, mm -hmm. in how our government works, um, devolving power back to the states and, and shoring up your rights and liberties in your city, in your county, uh, in your particular state, that's really the only path forward. I, I hope it doesn't come to that, but um, I do want a major change in Washington. That that's the only. Scenario. Yeah, I do want to emphasize too that, like you know, to, to take it from the theoretical to the practical, it's it's not just about um, you know remembering our constitutional system or allowing you know the, expecting the federal government to allow powers to be rolled back to the state level. I mean, these people will do anything, as we've seen, to hold on to their power. Um, so it, it's actually up to state level and county level people to assert their own power. I mean, that's what it takes. I mean, this is one of the great lessons of American and Western political theory in general is that only power has the ability to confront power. You know, we can't we can't keep it in the realm of like, you know, um, a theory or, you know, like, you know, well, well thought out phrases or things like that. You actually have to use power. You have to actually use, um, you know, political will to confront other political forces. And that's, I think that's one of the lessons that we have to take is we can't expect the federal government to just hand things back to the states. The states need to actually assert their power and confront it with, with actual expenditure of political bandwidth. Um, and I think that's one of the things that I want to emphasize too, is that this is, this is the way the dynamic has to work. Yep. You're exactly right. And, yeah. and until, until one side actually starts using power to confront the other side, nothing's going to change. Good. Well, so I think with that, we'll, we'll wrap up. Um, I mean, do you have any, do you have any last words on, you know, the weaponization of the legal system or anything like that? Um, it's, it's becoming more obvious, more corrupt. I mean, do you have any other just greater like leaving thoughts about, you know, that, that corruption of the legal system and the extent to which it's permeating downwards, you know, from Washington down to the local level? You know, we, we talked a lot about the cold war today. Um, and there's a principle in there that I think is super valuable that, that if, it were applied today would make a lot of these problems go away and that's mutually assured destruction. So that was yeah. the theory that uh, neither the Soviet Union nor America wanted to shoot a missile first because it didn't matter who nuked who first, both of them were getting destroyed. There was more than enough time for each side to destroy each other. Mm -hmm. uh, the left only understands power and until the right starts doing to them good and hard what they've been doing to the right, it's not gonna stop. So Republican DAs, attorney generals, they need to wake up and say, look, we wanted one set of rules. We wanted due process. We wanted the rule of law. Um, you didn't let that happen. So now we're coming after you and we'll stop when you cry, uncle. And then we can go back to the system we had until that happens. I don't think the left's ever going to stop. Yeah. Well, I appreciate the conversation. I think people should follow you on Twitter. Uh, what's your handle again? Sean M. D.A.V. S.E.A.N.M.D.A.V. Perfect. Well, go follow Sean on Twitter. I think one of the best things about your feed is just, you know, picking apart the narratives um, of the regime, 
um, you know, not only like, you know, undermining its own, you know, like moral legitimacy that it pretends to, to put forth, um, but just just tracking in very detailed ways the extent to which our legal and judicial system and political system is being weaponized on behalf of regime interests. So thank you, Sean. Everyone should go follow you. And, um, you know, I enjoyed the conversation. We'll have you back again.